0: and thank you all for coming. My name is Jonathan Blanks. I'm a research associate here at Cato's Project on Criminal Justice. I'm also managing editor of policemisconduct.net. Uh, welcome to Cato's uh, conference, Policing in America. For those of you who use Twitter, the official hashtag for today's event is #PolicingUS. Please, however, make sure that the phone you're using is on silent. Today's conference is a product of several months of planning and communication among a lot of people who deserve to be recognized. First of all, I'd like to thank all my colleagues who contributed to the planning process, particularly Trevor Burris, Adam Bates, Emily Eakins, Peter Russo, and Heather Karch. I'd personally like to thank my bosses, Tim Lynch and Gene Healy, for their guidance and patience as we put this thing together. I'd also like to thank our marketing and media teams for the work they've done getting the word out to have so many people here. I'd also like a special thank you to the web staff who had to keep updating the website as we added more names uh, and uh, new features to the to the uh, panels. And of course, I have to thank the conference team for making all of this possible, particularly Rachel Green, who is on us to make sure we stayed on top of everything. And especially, I must thank my colleague, Matthew Feeney, who had made sure the planning process actually turned into something. Getting a bunch of headstrong libertarians into a room to agree on something is no small feat. And finally, a huge thank you to all of our panelists all day to uh, make time out of their lives to share their perspectives with us today. One housekeeping note, uh, Professor Pete Kraska of Eastern Kentucky University had a personal emergency and couldn't make it today, but our friend uh, Clark Neely from the Institute for Justice was uh, gracious enough to fill in for us. Uh, The driving idea of this conference was to have a wide-ranging discussion about American policing, not simply to provide the typical libertarian uh, views of law enforcement. We have collected a group of experts to talk about the different facets of law enforcement and to provide nuance to a complicated and necessary function of government. Too often, I think libertarians get caught up in dogmatic arguments and myopic focus on big picture issues like the drug war. Certainly, the drug war is important and you'll be hearing a lot about it today, as you should. But we need to talk about the day-to-day functions of policing, the institutional pressures on police officers and as government actors. We also have to think about what sort of change is necessary and what that change looks like. Speakers and audience members today will be, at times, critical of police. But the takeaway from today cannot be a broad condemnation of police officers. We need to know what needs to be done to make American policing better. And part of that process is understanding what is and has been going wrong in American streets between the police and the public. We aim to cover a lot of ground. As you look over our agenda, you can see the broad strokes include the impacts and costs of police and technology, a discussion about police accountability, uh, policing's impacts on minority communities, and new strategies for combating crime and understanding police incentives. We'll hear from current and former law enforcement officers, law professors, activists, officials from the Obama administration, including COPS Director Ron Davis, and even Grover Norquist. Later this afternoon, my colleague Emily Eakins will share some polling data she commissioned for this conference about public perceptions of police. I won't give anything away, but suffice it to say that we as reformers have a lot of work to do. One quick note about programming, Uh, we don't have a panel dedicated to, just because we don't have a panel d- dedicated to police corruption or mental health or judiciary sanction disregard for the Fourth Amendment, doesn't mean that these aren't on our radar for future conferences and projects. We had to make some very tough choices about what areas we would focus on today, and I would invite you all to bring up any topics that come to your mind during the Q&A. And with that, I will turn it over to my colleague, Matthew Feeney.
1: Thank you, John. Uh, Good morning. Uh, My name is Matthew Feeney. I'm a policy analyst here at the Cato Institute. Uh, Thank you for making it on such a wet, dreary morning. Uh, But I'm really glad to be moderating the first panel on the costs and benefits of emerging police technologies. Uh, As will come as no surprise, police take advantage of new technologies, whether this has been radar guns or dash cameras or tasers. But recently, there's been widespread discussion on uh, technologies such as police body cameras and Stingrays, which I think pose very interesting privacy concerns. Uh, But, of course, technology will also have to be used in analyzing data. As an analyst, uh, I'm frustrated very often by the the lack of good data we have on American police. Uh, For instance, uh, data on use of force and the use of SWAT teams and number of interactions that Americans have with police forces is frustratingly limited. Uh, but I think we have a great panel here today to discuss all of these issues. I'm going to introduce each of the speakers in the order in which they will speak. Uh, they, will, they will then present, and we'll have a Q&A session before the break. The first speaker is Alex Rosenblatt, who is a researcher and technical writer at the Data and Society Research Institute. Her areas of research include technology and the future of work, technology and civil rights, and the social, legal, and ethical impact of technical systems. The second speaker is Lynn Overman, who serves as Senior Policy Advisor to the United States Chief Technology Officer at the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy. In this role, Lynn oversees the Chief Technology Officer's social and criminal justice reform efforts, focusing on leveraging data and technology to safely reduce incarceration, link people to effective treatment in the community, and improve human outcomes. Lynn also co-leads the White House Police Data Initiative, which focuses on using data to drive more effective community policing practices and opening police data to increase transparency and accountability. Prior to her work at the Chief Technology Officer's office, Lynn was a presidential appointee at the U.S. Department of Justice, helping to launch the Access to Justice Initiative, which focused on criminal and juvenile justice reform and improving legal services to the poor. Additionally, Lynn spent a year deployed as a senior advisor to the Mayor of New Orleans, before joining the Obama administration, Lynn was a civil rights and criminal defense attorney in Miami, Florida, specializing in police brutality and jail condition cases. She began her career as a public defender. Lynn graduated from the NYU School of Law and received her Bachelor of Arts from Bryn Mawr College. The last speaker is Nate Fried-Wessler, who is a staff attorney with the ACLU's Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project where he focuses on litigation and advocacy around surveillance and privacy issues, including Fourth Amendment concerns raised by cell phone location tracking, medical records access, and government use of new and emerging surveillance technologies. He previously served as a legal fellow in the ACLU's National Security Project, where he was involved in litigation seeking transparency and accountability for targeted killing and challenging unlawful detention at the U.S. prisons in Bagram and Guantanamo. Nate is a graduate of Swarthmore College and New York University School of Law, where he was a Root-Tilden Kern scholar. Following law school, he served as a law clerk to Judge Helene N. White of the United States Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit. Uh, Before we get started, um, just another reminder, I know John has told you already, please make sure your cell phones are off or silent, and please join me in welcoming Alex Rosenblatt.
2: Thank you very very much for having me. I'm a researcher and a technical writer at the Data and Society Research Institute, a nonprofit organization based in New York that examines the social legal and ethical impact of new technology across a wide variety of initiatives including criminal justice and civil rights. Just to give you a little bit of background, we just co-hosted with the Leadership Conference and Upturn, a conference in D.C. on data and civil rights that focused on a new era of policing and justice. We brought together people working at the intersection of technology and criminal justice who are committed to creating a more fair and just society, but who might have different definitions for what they mean by fair. If you're coming from a computer science background, it would be what categories do you need to insert for fairness and how do you define it and how do you codify it. If you're coming from a civil rights background, you're going to have a longer history to draw draw upon about how different civil rights laws have been implemented. And what we try to do is formulate a basis for a common conversation and a common vernacular in discussing the challenges that we're facing Technologists, academics, law enforcement, civil rights groups, companies, and government representatives met in workshops to examine a selection of technological tools and developments that impact policing and criminal justice more broadly, including predictive algorithms in courts to assess risk, predictive policing, social media surveillance by law enforcement, biometrics, open data initiatives, and police body-worn cameras. We've been doing a review of what's known and not known about body-worn cameras that we published out in February. And the reason we did that is that we were struck by the broad coalition of actors who were offering support for the adoption and implementation of body worn camera programs. Uh, Law enforcement was increasingly interested. Civil rights groups, mainly from the legacy civil rights groups, were very supportive of it. And there was a a policy shift about its adoption. It became a consensus matter for everyone to implement body cameras. And so it seemed as though there was a broad global consensus about this issue. But in fact, the major issues around body cameras have to do with access to body camera footage or retention or the whole numerous slew of challenges and concerns such as privacy and who has access to footage and how do you interpret that footage and that's what we set out to examine in more detail because while there might have been consensus about adoption there was very little consensus on what policy should be in place for the departments that did adopt and implement body worn cameras and in fact the policies that have been uh, put out by various departments often have individual or like you know there's not like one policy that they're all drawing from and they're tailoring it to their to their sort of departmental needs and regional needs and That's where we started to get into what are the major drawbacks of body-worn cameras. Where do we have challenges in interpretation, for example? One of the really compelling ideas about body-worn cameras is that they would provide an objective, third-party, neutral account, testimony, if you will, of what actually transpired. And there was this desire, a very strong desire, for objective truth as encounters between police and particularly black males and teenagers came into the public view and sort of anchored a strong media conversation about police brutality. The desire for objective third party witness is strong, but body cameras can't really provide that. They can provide one perspective from a particular vantage point. And that varies depending on where on the body the camera is. It won't necessarily, probably unlikely to capture, exactly what the officer is envisioning. And then you get into a whole slew of comparative details about what the cameras can offer. For example, cameras could come with night vision. That's been rejected a lot because if the footage reveals things that were not in fact in the officer's sight, You know, there's a whole host of issues where you challenge what a police officer is accounting for, what they're able to see, and how they perceive risk. And there's some concern that if you reveal more than what the officer could actually see, you might, in turn, sort of undermine the credibility of their own account. Who is empowered or disempowered by body cameras and their footage depends very much on the bureaucratic goals of the people making decisions about their use. One of the things we did try to examine was the policies that departments did have. Not all departments who have adopted body cameras have policies. Uh, Some of them don't make them publicly available or on their websites, for example. Uh, Some policies address some of the more contentious issues we've encountered with body cameras, one of which is discretion. When should an officer be empowered to have the discretion to turn off their camera? What circumstances are appropriate for turning off the camera? When is it not appropriate? What justification should an officer have for turning it off? And different different policies uh, address this in different ways. For example, uh, in Burlington, Vermont, their policy grants officers the discretion to try to avoid recording nude persons. Um, Generally, when policies do address sensitive issues uh, that cameras maybe shouldn't be turned on for, they have to do with... Sexual assault victims. But they could also have to do with the interiors of people's homes. When you call an officer to your house and they enter your home, do you want that recorded? Because there might be public access to that footage after the fact, depending on what the laws are in your state or the laws sort of governing that encounter. Uh, so if someone can then go and sort of FOIA footage of your home, you might feel that you're at risk for being burgled. So there's a variety of situations where privacy or sensitive issues might uh, be justifiable reasons for turning off cameras. The issue of discretion gets into issues of automation because one of the things that's sort of expected of technology is that it provides accountability because your choices are more limited. You lose some discretion when you bring in technological tools to try and limit the decision making that anyone can leverage. Um, One of the consequences we anticipated with the implementation of body cameras was that there could be a surge in in ticketing for low-level violations because officers might be worried that their supervisor back at the station could review the footage and say, why didn't you ticket that person? Why didn't you arrest that person? And that's sort of interesting when you're talking about data-driven policing because arrests and things of that nature are easier to quantify. What's harder to quantify are encounters where an officer successfully navigates a situation to not result in an arrest or to not result in use of force. And so any sort of data-driven policing initiative needs to think about and consider how do you reward officers for community policing for uh, successfully dealing with a situation where they didn't have to be aggressive or didn't have to make an arrest. The reason in particular we were concerned about low-level violations is because body-worn cameras were popularly adopted on the heels of the Ferguson riots and the widely publicized shooting and death of Michael Brown. And the rallying cry to have footage to keep officers accountable came with the risk that there would suddenly be an extension of surveillance over the communities who already face hyper surveillance and uh, magnified levels of policing. One of the other interesting issues around body cameras is that the highly publicized accounts of officer misconduct have come from, sorry, have come from civilian footage, civilian captured footage, not police officer body cameras. And so there was this strange parallel of a cry for police cameras, police-to-wear cameras, as opposed to empowering citizens to record police officers uh, without risk of prosecution. (coughs) Sorry. Uh, And so we've seen sort of the rise of adoption of cameras that are actually going to face the communities who were rallying around in support of them. And that's an interesting sort of twist on the adoption of body cameras that probably should be subject to further research to see whether, in fact, the communities who have demanded body cameras are benefiting from them or if there's hidden social or economic consequences to the extension of surveillance over their communities. I think the last issue, well, I'm going to address two more issues. One has been a common source of contention, and it's about whether body camera footage should be available to police officers before they make their reports. And this goes back to the question of accountability for which body cameras were supported and adopted in the first place. Uh, Many groups, many civil liberties groups, have supported the idea that officers should not be able to review footage before they make their reports uh, on the assumption that they could potentially tailor their reports to reflect what's in the footage, effectively buffering their own testimony to make it look more true than the other people who were... uh, in, that, in any given encounter, and then you have competing narratives about trying to achieve the most accurate reports that you could possibly get. Trying to balance accuracy and accountability and transparency and all of the sort of politics around this technology uh, means you have to really sit down and think about what kind of policies you have to have in place. For example, some have suggested that you could have officers review, like, rate their reports and then review footage afterwards. And if they make any changes to their reports, they could note that in the record. So you have some lens for seeing that there was a, a shift that led to a more accurate report overall. Trying to dispel notions that video will capture uh, an event that is very clearly interpret- interpreted is, is an important one, both for upholding the legitimacy of police actions as they're reported and for <coughs> not giving too much credit to video, which has often been people's inclination. Footage can never capture the whole picture of any given event, it won't necessarily capture uh, aggressive behavior that sort of of, uh, instigated events that are then recorded afterwards. Um, And even if there is a recording that a lot of people agree can be interpreted one way, often it depends on your background for knowing how best to interpret what has transpired. There was a really interesting case in the Supreme Court where uh, there was a plaintiff who was fleeing the police in a vehicle, and a police officer or a deputy uh, rammed into him to push him off the road or slow him down, uh, on the assumption that he proposed a threat to public safety, trying to you know, engaging in a high-speed chase on the highway, and the Supreme Court sided with that version of the facts because they had dash cam footage available to them that seemed to really prove the point. And they posted on their website to really make the point, like, look, it's on the video. It's obvious. It's obvious. It's self-evident. A law professor, Daniel Kahan took that footage and showed it to 1,350 people of diverse backgrounds, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different places on the political spectrum, different races. And there were no clear conclusions about what had actually transpired. And in fact. People who were lower income, who were African-American, who were Democrats tended to believe the version of the fact that the plaintiff, the one who was rammed into and who actually became a paraplegic as a result, um, had initially stated, whereas another side of the spectrum sided with the court. So I think in addressing a variety of challenges and issues with body cameras that are a lot more complicated than just having a camera and you're going to get accountability is is the idea that technology doesn't produce accountability. Technology is adopted into systems, into bureaucracies. They have systems in place for how things are going to work. And more often than not, for example, the interpretation of events will align with the more powerful actor at any given time. So we've, as an institute, been quite hesitant uh, to subscribe to the very auspicious and confident expectations that surround body cameras based on through our analysis of the various challenges at play. And these are only sort of the tip of the iceberg. There's a whole slew of them, and they really they vary by geography. Access to footage in different areas uh, is a variant. And so I think I would just leave off with a word of caution about the wholesale adoption of a less than tried and tested technology, uh, both because it's a hugely expensive endeavor, and also because the expectations are unrealistic. That's all I have, thank you.
3: Good morning. Sorry for the weather outside for anyone who came from outside of D.C. This is one of our typical late fall days. Uh, my name is Lynn Overman, as Matthew said, and I work at the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy. Um, and one of the things that we adopted really coming out of the President's 21st Century Policing Task Force was this notion of how can we help police departments better leverage data and technology to achieve the goals that they already have. So one of the common themes that emerged across the six pillars of the the task force recommendation was the need for transparency, accountability, and as the earlier speaker mentioned, data. We are not doing a great job at the national level of collecting data, which makes it really hard to understand what's happening, kind of from the federal level, what's going on in policing in America. But we thought there was a huge opportunity at the local level for a number of reasons. There are kind of two, I think, key themes that emerge from our work with the police data initiative. One is I would say there are kind of two sides of the same coin, which is transparency and accountability, there's been a lot of uh, conversation about accountability, I expect there will be all day today. And two, uh, there's a tremendous opportunity in the data that police departments already have that they weren't really leveraging. So how did we help police departments kind of conquer those two challenges? So starting with the transparency and accountability work, which is really where we started the police uh, data initiative, we did two things that we very commonly do in the chief technology officer's office. We do something that we call Scout and Scale. So one of the things that we've learned is when you're tackling a hard problem, that problem has almost always been solved by somebody already, and you just have to find where they are. So when we were talking about, you know, How do we use data and how do we open up data for transparency to to get at one of the core issues that we were really seeing between police and the communities, which is understanding how police is happening in your neighborhood is really a key step to the community being able to hold their police department accountable and understand what's happening. Um, And what we found was Dallas, actually, the Dallas Police Department had done some amazing work in opening up officer-involved shootings. And they did it for a very compelling reason. In 2012, there was a police shooting that looked pretty bad. And there were nearly riots in the city, and so the police chief, in trying to help deal with those riots, committed to the community that he would open up data, and he did. He opened twelve years of officer-involved shooting data down to the incident level, so you could see officer, incident type, race of the of the victim, everything that the community needed to know, and he really, the chief really credits opening up that data as the beginning of a dialogue that was very helpful. for the police department. So we found what uh, what Dallas was doing, Seattle has actually been doing some really interesting work around body worn camera footage. And then what we did was we went around and we kind of talked to a lot of police chiefs in the community. Um, And the great thing I will tell you, and it's ironic, I've spent a lot of my time kind of as a public defender and and in suing police departments, you would think that I was an anti-police person. I actually love police and I'll tell you why. First of all, there is nothing better than a great police officer, and there's nothing better than a great chief. And there are a lot of really amazing chiefs out there. And the greatest thing about police chiefs, I would say, is that they are inherently problem solvers. They want to know what the problem is, they want a solution, and they will implement like crazy. And they, because they're dealing with things, they are also innovators. So if you think about police and technology, they've actually done a hugely amazing job of adopting technology on the crime fighting side of the shop. And so what we're trying to work with them to do is how do we take that muscle that they developed on the crime fighting side of the shop and apply it to all of the data that they already have on police citizen encounters. So we brought together, I think originally we had 21 different jurisdictions that joined us. Uh, and we're up to 27, I think, at this point. And most of them are on the map. We've had a couple of late additions. Um, And we got them to to commit to opening data on police citizen encounters. So these are the kinds of things. So this isn't crime data. This isn't who was burglarized or where a car was stolen. These are things like officer use of force, uh, officer-involved shootings, stop and frisks. And we've seen the police departments respond in an amazing way. So Louisville, um, and I say that properly because that's where my family's from, um, Louisville actually has basically opened up almost real-time data on stops. So you can actually see where police are enforcing laws in the community almost to the real time at the block level. The Austin Police Department opened up recently 14 years of officer-involved shooting data. And Chief Acevedo from Austin, who's awesome, he actually got up in front of the major city chiefs at the IACP and said, everyone should do this. So this kind of theory that opening up data would uh, enable a dialogue that has been different than what the dialogue they've been able to have before, we're kind of seeing it happen on the ground. And then the other thing that we've seen, so the transparency piece has been very important, but the other thing that we've seen is is equally critical is the internal accountability. So as a community, we can ask our police officers to be accountable and to be held accountable, but without that leadership at the police department, that accountability itself is hard to execute. So the other thing that we did is we were kind of doing our scouting and scaling was realizing that a lot of police departments have things called early intervention systems. These are systems that are designed to identify officers who may be having problems with the way that they're encountering the public um, and getting them training. So this is not a disciplinary approach. This is a, hey, you know, I'm I'm noticing you've had a a kind of a number of use of force reports over the past six months and every, every department was flagging things differently. But the idea is let's get the officers the training and the supervision they need to make them good officers. And frankly, if they can't do it, then maybe they shouldn't be a police officer. But one of the interesting things, as we're talking to chiefs across the country, every single early intervention system flagged a different behavior. So we actually got about 16 chiefs in the room, and we asked them to tell, what do you flag in your early intervention system? And we ended up with 60 different behaviors. And they were everything that you could possibly think of. The obvious ones, some of them flagged foot pursuits because those tend to end in use of force. Some of them flagged age. And I said, well, old or young? And they actually, a lot of them flagged things like time on shift. There's a whole variety of things that could be indicative of a problem. But the interesting thing was no one had actually done the research to validate whether we were flagging the right behaviors. And the CIO of the LAPD told us that their early intervention system had actually not flagged a single officer that they ended up firing. So this was kind of a great example of the other approach that we tend to take at the CTO's office, which is bringing the deep subject matter expertise that exists in the community together with technologists. So we kind of married the University of Chicago uh, Center for Data Science and Public Policy with the Charlotte Mecklenburg Police Department. And they have done an amazing job working on 10 years of Charlotte Mecklenburg police data to try to build a more predictive accountability tool. And although it's still in the very early stages, what they did was they took the 10 years of data, they found incidents where things had gone bad and worked backwards using basic data science, uh, analytics, machine learning. And then they compared what their tool came up with, with the existing Charlotte tool. And early signs are that this new tool that is being developed is significantly more accurate in predicting the officers that are gonna have problems. So it's a predictive as opposed to a retroactive view. But the other really important thing that they discovered was it actually was quite successful in reducing false positives. That's actually a really important point because if you have a good early intervention system and you have the infrastructure that the the police department's actually using it. And I think this is a really great point that Alex made. Technology is not a solution, technology is a tool. So you can have the best technology tool in the world, but if you don't have the internal infrastructure to actually use it, it's not gonna get you anywhere. So if you have an officer who's been flagged and the supervisor doesn't feel like they have to do anything about it, that's not gonna get you where you wanna be. The way that you can, so it's the combination of kind of police leadership, that internal infrastructure that allows them to take advantage of the tools that we've provided them with technology that really gets us where we want to be. Um, But if you're a supervisor and you have this accountability structure where you know I have to report up the chain of command, my officer's been flagged and I have then gone and counseled my officer and here's the plan that I have for this person. If you've got good cops on the street that are being flagged by a bad, bad system, that's not great for morale you're not encouraging your proactive officers to go out and do what you want them to do if they have a system. Every time they think that they do something, they're going to get flagged and their supervisor is going to come talk to them. So reducing those false positives is actually kind of an unexpected outcome. And then the third thing that we didn't anticipate was, you know, as these tools get better and better, if you can start to see using the data what the common challenges are that police are facing, the police departments could actually be proactive. So we'd actually kind of make steps forward in improving officer wellness and safety so that we prevent people from having problems in the first place. So we're really optimistic about the power of this tool to kind of increase uh, the predictability and the predictiveness of, of finding the officers and getting them the help that they need and also improving officer wellness and safety, which was another key recommendation in the task force report. And then the other thing, obviously, I I suspect there are going to be a lot of conversations about body-worn cameras today. Um, It's actually, from a kind of a technology perspective, it's a fascinating space because what we are witnessing is the very rapid adoption of a brand-new technology. Uh, And it's funny, I think, as Alex talked about, um, the policy has not quite caught up to the technology, and there's been some really amazing work that's being done on the policy side of the shop around things like privacy, uh, kind of accountability, who gets to turn it off, et cetera. But from the kind of geeky technology perspective, one of the things that we're really seeing in this space is a big challenge is this actually represents a massive new data input into police departments. We're talking for larger departments about hundreds of thousands of hours of video most of which has nothing on it that's going to be helpful. But how do you find those few minutes that are actually something that somebody should be looking at? And currently, there aren't really mature tools on the market that allow for that type of analysis. So there's no way to automate uh, body-worn camera data at this point. Some police departments are tackling that problem by uh, kind of doing spot checks. We know that all folks, you know, if there's a particular incident, you can go back and find the body-worn camera footage. Uh, if a court orders it, if a defense attorney asks for it. But there's, it's this massive trove of information that has huge opportunities. So certainly when you're thinking about accountability, uh, which is I think how a lot of folks are thinking about body-worn camera technology, uh, being able to comb through that video to find incidents that you might not otherwise be aware of would be hugely helpful. So there's been some interesting partnerships that have emerged in this space. Uh, the Oakham Police Department, who's been under one of the longest-running consent decrees in the country, as a result of that consent decree has actually had body-worn cameras for over four years now, so they're kind of one of the early adopters of this technology. They've partnered with Stanford, and Stanford has put together an entire team of folks that are trying to build out an automated audio tool. And that audio tool will flag officer tone, pitch, volume, and speed. And they're gonna use it in two different ways. One is to find situations where the officer may have escalated, and the other one is to find situations where the officer may have de-escalated. Because those are equally important, is to kind of, to Alex's point earlier, how do you find those officers that you know that you can deploy in the field and can kind of diffuse every situation? You talk to a sergeant, you talk to a lieutenant, you talk to a police chief, they will be able to tell you the four guys on their force that can do this routinely. Using that as a training tool could be incredibly powerful. Um, and then the other thing that we've heard about. So the big, the real challenge from the um, kind of analysis perspective is uh, the shakiness of the camera because the camera is placed on somebody's body, and the shakiness of the actual frame of the video makes it difficult. So we we've done a good job of automating surveillance video because we can factor in the pan, but the shakiness is really what the challenge is at this point. Um, LAPD actually has partnered with uh, UCLA. And they're using the shakiness to kind of figure out ways to to use that to their advantage. So they're initially building out a tool that will allow them to flag foot pursuits based on kind of the extra shakiness of the camera. So we think that there's a lot of promise in that. But we also think there's huge opportunity, not just on the accountability side of the shop with body-worn camera footage, but also for things like innovating in training. So we're asking police departments to take on all kinds of new training approaches. We're asking them to train in things like procedural justice, constitutional policing, just the regular training that we give them on use of force and de-escalation, you can actually use this data to see if it works. Did my training work? Did it work for everybody? Did it work for some shifts and not other shifts? How long does it stick? Right, we haven't actually, if you talk to chiefs, we haven't innovated in the way that we train police officers in 20 years. So they get kind of the standard training, once a year, once every three years, whatever it may be. Uh, But we don't know if we're doing that right. And so there's huge opportunities with this data to kind of test how how is this working, where do we need to change, and what what else could we possibly do with it? So those are kind of, I would say that the key, the thrust of the police data initiative at this stage. And we work very closely with our partner jurisdictions and are always welcoming new jurisdictions uh, to join. One thing I will say is we very intentionally, certainly on the open data side, We are not advertising this as a solution to the national data collection challenge. We really think that this opening up of the data is a critical piece of building trust between local police departments and their local community. Um, The hard, hard work of national data collection so that folks understand what things are looking like community to community is really owned by the Department of Justice, and they're working really hard on that, Um, but as you may not be surprised, this kind of... National data collection is, is a real challenge that we're, we're still struggling with. And, and I would also say there are still a huge amount of, of work to be done, there's a lot of work to be done in this space. Alex kind of also alluded to a challenge that we really face, which is you know back when ComStat came in, which would be really the first police data initiative, um, which was holding beat officers and precincts accountable for the way that they were policing their community. That tracks things like stops and that tracks things like arrests. Um, we don't actually have good metrics on the community policing side of the shop. So as we're asking police departments to turn from, you know, over-reliance on stops and arrests to demonstrate that they are doing what we're asking them to do and we're asking them to become more of these community policing guardians, uh, we don't know how to measure that. So it's really hard to figure out how to give people credit for the good work that they're doing if we don't have those good metrics in place. So a stop is easy to quantify, de-escalating a challenging situation and not arresting somebody, using your discretion to not arrest somebody, is much harder to measure. So we're still we're actively ca- kind of talking with police departments about how they might want to do that. But there is this growing sense among police chiefs that we need to kind of, uh, you know, if the whole theory is you, you, you measure what you care about, we need to figure that problem out. So I anticipate that there are a lot of um, areas that we still have left to explore, and I know you're going to be exploring a lot of them today. And I really appreciate the uh, opportunity to come and talk to you a little bit about what we're doing at the White House. Thank you.
4: <laughs> Good morning. Thank you. Law enforcement is uh, experiencing a golden age of surveillance, driven both by the constant uh, increase in the volume and diversity of information uh, created about and by us, and also by a, a really constant proliferation and advance of very powerful new surveillance technologies. Uh, those technologies are often developed by the military or for military or intelligence agency uses, but inevitably they filter out to law enforcement, first at the federal level, and then to state and local police. And many of these surveillance technologies raise uh, difficult and novel concerns under the Fourth Amendment and state uh, and federal privacy laws. For example, legislatures and police departments are grappling right now with how to regulate use of automated license plate readers, uh, which can snap photos of every license plate that passes by Uh, machine read them, uh, translate them into readable text, then geotag that plate information with the location and and date and time, and feed it into a database that can contain millions of records of other drivers, uh, resulting in what is increasingly uh, a record of where everybody who drives a car is going much of the time. Uh, Police departments are starting to use uh, handheld radar devices that can see through the walls of homes and other constitutionally protected spaces and identify people and objects inside. Uh, Cell site simulators, also known as stingrays, allow police to very precisely track and locate cell phones. But in the process, they also sweep in information about large numbers of bystanders' phones in the area. Uh, And law enforcement at the federal level, and we'll see it soon at the state and local level, are increasingly using computer hacking techniques to remotely and surreptitiously search computers, including to download data Uh, from those computers and even to turn on their webcam surreptitiously without the computer user knowing it. Figuring out how these and other technologies can be used consistently with the Fourth Amendment and other laws requires open and informed debate by the public and the press, by our elected officials, and by the courts. Uh, None of these oversight processes are quick though. Litigation takes years. Uh, Congress finds it difficult to act on even overwhelmingly popular privacy legislation. Uh, and agencies often lack the right incentives to regulate themselves effectively. So in order to appropriately constrain use of powerful surveillance technologies, it's really crucial that these oversight mechanisms are able to kick in early enough before these technologies have spread widely and are in in full use all over. Uh, Unfortunately, that's not often what happens. Law enforcement acquisition and use of surveillance technologies is frequently shrouded in secrecy, uh, meaning that the public and lawmakers and judges are often kept in the dark until years, sometimes decades, after the technology's initial adoption, at which point large-scale privacy harms may have occurred, constitutional violations may have occurred uh, in ways that are no longer able to be remedied. Uh, In some cases, by the time legislatures and courts have the the information they need to start placing limits on use of the technology, law enforcement has already begun to move on to newer, uh, more, more powerful, and still secret surveillance technologies And so the pattern repeats over and over. Uh, I wanna focus this morning on this dynamic of secrecy and particularly how it has functioned to insulate one specific surveillance technology, uh, cell site simulators from judicial and legislative oversight until very recently. Uh, Cell site simulators, they're also known as MC catchers or stingrays, which is how I'll refer to them, uh, are devices that mimic cell phone towers. Uh, Law enforcement uh, often will install them in a vehicle. They can be installed in airplanes. Some of them are small enough to carry by hand. And they send out a signal that uh, mimics an actual cell phone tower. It says essentially, hey, I'm an AT&T or a Sprint tower, talk to me. And it forces every phone in the area to transmit back information, uh, most commonly the unique electronic serial number of that phone. Now, using that transmission of the serial number, law enforcement can very, very precisely locate where a phone is and track its, its whereabouts. Uh, but, and this is one of the, the real privacy concerns, And an inherent function uh, of that technology is that even when police are tracking the location of one particular suspect, it also sweeps in unique identifying information about many bystanders' phones in the area. Uh, I sometimes describe this technology as a version of the kids' pool game, Marco Polo. Uh, The Stingray yells, Marco, and every phone in the area gets excited and yells, Polo, I'm over here. I'm phone 6235121. And it does that for all of them. Um, This technology also raises other privacy concerns. It sends signals not only into public spaces, but through the walls of homes and other constitutionally protected spaces, and can very precisely locate people on their phones inside. It operates surreptitiously. No person looking at their phone would have a good idea that a stingray is is talking to it rather than a normal cell tower. Uh, Sometimes this technology can actually interfere with the transmission of calls over the network because phones are being forced to talk to a fake cell tower rather than a real one. Uh, Some versions of the technology can even uh, record metadata about ongoing phone calls and text messages, uh, or some some types, and and we don't think this is the predominant use, uh, can even wiretap the contents of calls. This technology was initially developed for military and intelligence agency uses, uh, and a little over 20 years ago, federal law enforcement started to adopt earlier versions of it. Uh, And then by the early to mid 2000s, it started to filter out to state and local police. Uh, State and local agencies typically purchase uh, this technology using federal grant money uh, from the Department of Homeland Security or the Department of Justice uh, or using asset forfeiture funds. It's the same pattern we've seen in other forms of of sort of militarization of police uh, that that post-Ferguson debate we've been having about other kinds of uh, police gear. Uh, Those grant applications, uh, as well as applications for purchasing authorities submitted to to city councils and other uh, local-level oversight bodies, uh, often justify these purchases as necessary for homeland security operations or counterterrorism goals, Uh, although, as I'll talk about, that inevitably is not how they are predominantly used at the state and local level. So based on publicly available information that the ACLU has been tracking, uh, we now know of at least 58 state and local law enforcement agencies across the country, spread over 23 states in the District of Columbia, that have bought their own Stingray devices. Uh, Now, that's an undercount both because uh, there's a lot of secrecy around these purchases, so certainly there are agencies that have not yet disclosed their purchase, but also even agencies that don't buy their own are able to borrow from federal law enforcement, uh, from the state police, or from neighboring local jurisdictions. So this kind of, of really basic information about the extent of proliferation of the technology, its capabilities, and its uses uh, has only emerged in the last couple of years, despite the fact that there have been uh, a good 20-odd years of, of use by domestic law enforcement in this country. Uh, and that, that information that's emerged has only been able to emerge because a really extraordinary secrecy regime has started to crumble. At the center of that secrecy regime, are a couple of non-disclosure agreements, Uh, one that's imposed by the primary uh, maker and marketer of these devices, the Harris Corporation, but the other that's been imposed by the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Uh, And and that FBI non-disclosure agreement does a couple of of really amazing things. Uh, First, it has prohibited police from disclosing any information to the public about Stingray technology or its use or acquisition. Uh, It also prohibits disclosing similar information to defense attorneys or to courts without explicit prior authorization of the FBI. Uh, and I think this is the most incredible provision of that document. Uh, it requires that if, uh, if it looks like a court is going to order disclosure to a defense attorney of information about a cell site simulator or how it was used pursuant to a, a defense discovery request, local police have to agree in advance that they will be willing to dismiss the prosecution or otherwise make the case go away instead of being forced to disclose uh, even basic information to the the defense, uh, which of course means that uh, courts very seldom have an opportunity to weigh in on the constitutionality of use of this technology, Uh, defense attorneys aren't able to bring suppression motions, and the public is left in the dark. Uh, So as a result, police have used stingray technology thousands of times across the country over uh, the last decade or so without getting probable cause warrants in most cases and without fully informing judges of what they were doing. Uh, they've used a number of, of tactics to to enforce the secrecy regime at the ground level. Uh, we've seen examples uh, that we've uncovered of police departments foregoing getting a, a warrant or a court order in the first instance because they didn't want to have to figure out a way to to circuitously explain to a judge what they were doing. Or they may get a court order in the first instance, but not tell the judge in the application for that order, what they actually wanted to use it for. Later in the investigation, they may forgo a warrant to, say, search the house where they track the cell phone to because they don't wanna have to explain in that subsequent warrant application how it is that they found themselves at the house of the suspect so quickly and so accurately. Uh, We've seen court filings where law enforcement uses euphemisms like covert investigative technique, end of story, as the full explanation of of how they intend to or did track a phone. Uh, We obtained internal uh, emails from a police department in Florida Describing how the U- U.S. Marshal Service, from whom they were borrowing a Stingray device, had instructed local cops never to refer to Stingrays in later warrant applications, subsequent time in an investigation, but only to use the term, "we f- we obtained information from a confidential source." Period. It sounds like a confidential informant, not like a very sensitive device in the back of the police car that's that's probing all the phones in the area. We've seen other euphemisms. Seen refusal to answer questions under testimony in court. Uh, including uh, invocations. There are a couple fascinating transcripts out of Baltimore, state court in Baltimore, where police officers are first questioned by a public defender, and they say, sorry, I can't tell you how we we found this phone and and your client. Uh, Homeland security concerns preclude me from answering. And then the judge starts pushing, what are you talking about? You can't just invoke Homeland Security uh, without an explanation. Uh, In some of these cases, the evidence has actually been thrown out, uh, or police officers have been threatened to be held in contempt because they refuse to provide an account of how they did their investigation. Uh, but that, that's the rare case where you even get far enough for the court or the defense attorney to be asking those questions. Uh, on the public records request side, uh, we at the ACLU and a number of, um, of media organizations around the country have pursued uh, state and local public records requests, trying to get just basic information about purchase and, and use, uh, like frequency of use, how much money was spent on these devices. Uh, we've had success over time, uh, but we've we've run into a, a lot of stonewalling, uh, including several police departments uh, from cities as large as Kansas City, communities uh, smaller than that, like Sunrise, Florida, west of Fort Lauderdale, that have uh, used what what in public records law is called the GLOMAR response. They refuse to confirm or deny the existence or non-existence of any records. Uh, that's uh, something that I encounter frequently from certain parts of the FBI, the National Security Division, or from the CIA or the NSA, not something I expected from local police department Uh, engaged in just normal crime fighting out on the streets. Uh, We've had to resort to litigation. Uh, The New York Civil Liberties Union, for example, uh, sued the Erie County Sheriff's Office uh, in upstate New York in order to to force release of the contents of that non-disclosure agreement itself. Uh, Until a court uh, sided with us and ordered release of that document, no police department had even released the document that forced them to not talk about the technology. It was this level of meta-secrecy that made it very difficult to know what was going on. Now, as a result of that litigation, we we have that non-disclosure agreement, and other departments around the country have been willing to release their copies, seeing now that there's there's no real purpose served by keeping that secret anymore. We've learned uh, a lot about frequency of use. Uh, So we know uh, now, through through an accretion of these public records requests and defense defense discovery requests, that in Baltimore, for example, over the course of seven years, the police department uh, used its Stingray devices more than 4,300 times, uh, mostly without probable cause warrants. In Milwaukee, it was 600 investigations over five years. In Tallahassee, uh, about 275 phones were tracked over the course of over six years. In Tacoma, Washington, it was a little under 200 investigations over five years. Tacoma is a nice example of of the kind of mission creep that can happen when there's a just lack of public knowledge and oversight over what's happening. Uh, When the Tacoma Police Department uh, submitted documentation to its city council to justify uh, use of a federal grant to buy a Stingray device some years ago, it justified that purchase uh, as necessary to prevent and interrupt IEDs, improvised explosive devices. You may think, I didn't know that was a problem in Tacoma, Washington. <laughs> Turns out it's not. When a local press agency eventually got the list from them of all 179 times they'd used a Stingray, of course there was not a, a single uh, incident involving an explosive, uh, improvised explosive device. It was the regular uh, array of -of run-of-the-mill crimes that our police departments investigate. Uh, Some were were the most serious, a few homicides, some assaults, a few missing persons or or alleged kidnappings. And then it it turned out over time, an increasing fraction were drug crimes. Uh, To be expected, it's the kind of work that police are doing anyway. It's not being used as an extraordinary national security tool. Uh, We have found uh, evidence over and over that police were not, uh, in most departments, getting probable cause warrants, uh, but rather were working with prosecutors to apply for court orders on a much lower standard. They're called pen register orders. They're issued just on a showing of relevance to an investigation, uh, much lower standard than the probable cause needed for a warrant. Um, And we've discovered that most law enforcement agencies have completely lacked any policies governing their uh, use of this technology including uh, any rules about how they handle all that bystander data that the device inevitably sweeps up. So there, we've uncovered uh, a whole lot of, of substance uh, of the, the problem that comes from just lack of opportunity for oversight and debate that comes with this level of secrecy. Um, but we are also now seeing what happens when the light is shined on, on this kind of a surveillance technology. And so as more information has come out in the public debate, uh, has, has intensified, we've seen uh, in recent months the Federal Department of Justice and Department of Homeland Security issuing new policy guidance to its, their own law enforcement agencies requiring as a default matter, uh, use of probable cause warrants, uh, requiring strict rules for the deletion of bystander data, requiring candor to judges in those warrant applications and some other protections. Uh, just a couple weeks ago, a federal magistrate judge in Chicago issued a, a really fantastic opinion Uh, surveying the the recently available new information about stingrays, providing some explanation about what they were, and then uh, putting prosecutors in in that area on notice that when they come to that court uh, seeking a warrant to use a stingray, they have to satisfy certain requirements, including protocol for deleting bystander data, minimization requirements, uh, and some other other pieces. Uh, In California, the Alameda County District Attorney's Office has recently adopted a, a quite strong policy requiring warrants and other protections. Uh, that was uh, a result of negotiation with the ACLU and public input from uh, from community members. Um, We've seen a couple of states, Washington and Virginia in the last year, uh, adopt laws requiring warrants for this technology. Uh, Other states are moving in the same direction. Uh, At the federal level, congressional committee members are asking questions, uh, sending letters to federal law enforcement agencies, uh, starting to to schedule hearings. Uh, There's been federal legislation introduced recently uh, and at the local level, uh, in courts around the country, we're starting to see discovery and disclosure motions uh, being brought uh, and suppression motions uh, being brought and won where uh, attorneys figure out that, in fact, this technology was being used. It's being used without a warrant and without appropriate candor to the court. Uh, and so we are, we are just at the cusp of starting to get some, some judge-made law explaining what the Fourth Amendment means in this context, uh, all of which is important and all of which is the kind of framework that we should have much earlier in adoption of a surveillance technology to ensure that privacy interests of the public, uh, requirements of the Fourth Amendment, and other provisions of law are respected. Um, So I'll just close by saying that this, this story about stingrays shows the danger of excessive secrecy, but also the real utility and importance of transparency uh, unfortunately, the long delay that we see with Stingrays has repeated itself many times with other surveillance technologies. Uh, but hopefully, we're, we're at a moment in this sort of confluence of, of the post-Snowden uh, era and the post-Ferguson era where we're thinking about both surveillance and police practices and police technologies and can start to, to find some consensus around a way to set policies at the outset that avoids this kind of, of long running problem.
1: Well, thanks to Alex, Nate, and Lynn. We now have some time for Q&A. What I will ask is that you wait to be called on. We'll have uh, some of my colleagues here with microphones. It's so that the people watching online might be able to hear. Uh, Please announce your name and affiliation. Uh, And please remember that this is the question and answer session, not the statement and answer uh, session. So questions end in question marks. So where can I uh, begin? I'll take this gentleman at the front here.
5: Gabe Goldberg, freelance technology writer and volunteer with the Fairfax County Police Department. A word that was in the title of the panel really hasn't been mentioned, cost. And besides the cost of the equipment, the body cameras, Stingray, things like that, there's a huge cost in the back office of maintaining data that's recorded, video that's recorded, uh, the stingray data that's recorded, just in terms of people handling it, archiving it, you get to terabytes of data that somebody has to handle. And the question in police departments where budgets are relatively constrained is over time, are some of these technologies simply additional costs? Are there trade-offs where in the long run they may actually serve as economies? uh, When a department has to uh, uh, consider perhaps trade-offs between school resource officers, officers stationed in the school, and buying some new cameras, and then having the staff to maintain and just deal with the, with the new technology. It's a challenge uh, on the budget. So, how about the cost issue in all of these all of these technologies?
2: We haven't found one single like even cost across the board. Different departments are charged different prices. Data storage costs uh, are plummeting, but departments may well be locked into contracts they made to purchase X amount of storage at a certain price. Uh, if you're locked into a particular platform, such as evidence.com, which was formerly hosted by Amazon and is now hosted by Microsoft, uh, you might have to continue to use their platform even if you find cheaper data storage elsewhere uh, because you might have engaged in a contract already. So you'd just be foregoing the cost that you initially you know, you're already paying for. Um, the personnel cost is certainly an issue. Um, sometimes these costs are somewhat defrayed by grants that are specific to body-worn camera programs, but grant funding might run out after you know three years, and then you have to decide as a department whether or not it's a trade-up that's worthwhile. One of the speculations I've heard about uh, mitigating that cost or making it worthwhile is that you could reduce officer complaints. Uh, that are not totally valid, you might be able to dismiss complaints that would otherwise result in very expensive lawsuits. And so there is a hope that's there for cities and for departments that they might be able to reduce their expenses in terms of the millions of dollars they can pay out in civil suits and and uh, litigation.
3: Yeah, I think um, the other thing, I would mentioned that this is kind of a new technology. There also are opportunities that come with the adoption of new technology. Uh, one of the things that I often talk about with police chiefs is that they don't um, – procure? They don't behave like a market. There are 18,000 law enforcement departments across country. Some of them are quite large. Uh, And do we have an opportunity at the beginning to try to avoid the type of vendor lock-in that we've seen, not just in police space. Police departments really struggle with this. So, for example, we went up to Camden. Camden had 41 different technology systems, none of which spoke to each other. So uh, oftentimes what we'll see is police departments will sign contracts, but they don't realize they're literally signing over their data. So they ask for their data back for researchers to access it, and the company says, no, you don't own your data, we own your data. Uh, and this is a problem we see in other other markets as well. Healthcare is a great example of it too. You, kind of knowing where things can go off the rails in other places, this is an opportunity for police departments to come together and say, you know, could we come up with a publicly owned or public-private partnership on data storage? Could we govern the way that our data is collected as used? Could we use that type of a platform to drive data standards, which would allow folks to kind of compare jurisdictions? How do we see this as an opportunity to perhaps lower costs, um, create standard data, and enable research and innovation to happen in a, a more open marketplace than uh, is probably going to emerge if it just kind of stays on the track that it's currently on? So. That would be hard to accomplish. it's certainly something I think that's worth talking about um, but we don't we do know that the cost of data storage in and of itself um, right now that seems to be where the market's driving. Is there a way that we can shift market incentives towards innovation as opposed to kind of monetizing that storage? but it's definitely going to be a, a challenge
4: and I, you know I also think that that uh, when we're talking about da- data retention uh, and cost, that's a place where where protection of privacy and cost control can actually complement each other. Uh, you know, Retaining all of the body camera footage that every police officer in the department uh, records indefinitely is gonna very quickly result in many, many terabytes of data. Um, but we we may not want to uh, retain all of that. There are a small number of incidents that uh, we wanna retain for a long time because they show uh, allegations of misconduct uh, or maybe they're useful for training purposes. Everything else that may just show people walking around uh, about their daily lives in public uh, can pretty quickly be ruled out as not interesting for long-term storage, and so we can start to dump some of that, which controls costs, but also can protect uh, privacy of, of members of the public.
1: Another I have question? Uh, I'll take, I wanna head to the middle here. So that gentleman in the middle, yellow tie? D- yes, you, yes, thanks.
5: Uh, thank you, Reggie Felton, Felton Associates. You talked about, your, your studies and the information you, you've uh, been addressing, you didn't talk about or didn't mention any of the political concerns either in pursuing the data collection or trying to uh, frame your 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 uh, findings so that there would be community acceptance. Could you comment at all on any of that?
1: Look at the White House. I guess, sure. <laughs> so I think...
5: Um,
3: we we really launched the police data initiative um, hoping to start a conversation i don't think and again we know that there are significant challenges in the national data collection we don't currently collect data on use of force Um, there is a law in place that requires us to collect data on officer involved shootings it's not been effective so we actually at the federal level don't have good data Uh, and we are working to make that possible and i think some of the big challenge in that space this is something that we see a lot. Um, we at the federal level tend to ask communities to give us data and we consume it and we either release it three or four years down the road or we kind of, we do all kinds of things with it that are useful to us, less useful than perhaps we would like to the public and not at all useful for the places that we're collecting it from. So we certainly see challenge kind of with data quality that we're getting. We are not incentivizing folks to give us the data that we we all collectively know that we want and need. And are there different ways that we at the federal level can can do that? Can we actually provide some analysis back to police departments? So if they give us data, we can tell them things that are useful to them in their uh, kind of the way that they they do their operations. Um, There are efforts underway to to look at at different ways of doing that. From the police data initiative side, uh, we are seeing there's some, it's actually interesting, I think there's five or six states, they wouldn't call them open data laws, but they have open records laws specifically regarding things like police stops. And we've seen some really innovative tools that have been developed as a result. So uh, in North Carolina, the Southern, I think it's the Southern Coalition for Justice has done this amazing tool. You can compare officer by officer stops. And those tools actually revealed, for example, there was one particular officer that only appeared to be uh, stopping black men. And that was really helpful information for the police chief to know. And it was not knowable until this tool was developed. So our theory is, is kind of building that ecosystem of open data uh, and allowing the folks in the community to figure out the best way to utilize that. I also know as somebody who worked very closely in these communities, uh, kind of in my, my original iteration, um, open data is are words that are meaningful to people who are technologists. But really what that represents is ex- Information and translating that information in a way that's meaningful to the community is something that's really important and is probably going to be the next step. Um, New Orleans, you know, NOPD has a long and checkered history. Let's all be candid. Um, they actually did a data release and they brought in... Uh, Uh, Kids from the community who were learning how to code and so they did an initial release to these kids and then they brought in city technologists Um, and the the kids were able to kind of combine um, 311 calls which are calls for problems in the neighborhood with 911 calls and reveal some really interesting things. So we, we see it as again it's a tool not a solution. Uh, and we think that people, the best benefit of this data is going to be people taking it and using it and adopting it to the needs of the community. A um, lot of work to be done. I don't think that this is the solution, but it's certainly, we thought it was a step that we could take. We had willing police departments as partners, and we're hoping to get more and more police departments doing it.
1: Sure, anyone else? Um, I'll take the uh, the lady in the, the middle there with the, actually, thank you.
3: Thank you. I'm Carolyn Hemingway. I'm... At- uh, co-founder of Fairfax Zero Tolerance Reform, and my advocacy is juvenile justice. So my question is about education and in the uh, in school systems and the use of this kind of technology by, well, they're called SROs, but they're really police, and what you're seeing in the future there, um, and some of the issues as they relate uh, to what you've discussed, and also my other question is related to that is the use of social media because young people now are using that and I'm seeing actually way more videos now of positive police interactions and I'm wondering if uh, that's being leveraged.
4: Privacy of students is is a really important topic and, and one that um, I think is talked about not enough but is immediately compelling to the large number of people who happen to be parents. Uh, and some of those privacy concerns are vis-a-vis school administration, have nothing to do with law enforcement, but some of them are about law enforcement, uh, and some of them bleed over very quickly. Uh, so there are questions. Uh, you know, uh, About two years ago, the Supreme Court decided a case called uh, Riley that was about... Uh, Whether police need a warrant to search the contents of someone's cell phones when they have seized that cell phone uh, uh, incident to a lawful arrest, and the court unanimously nine to zero said yes, you um, that's a Fourth Amendment search. You you need a warrant unless there's some exigent circumstance. Um, But courts have really not yet uh, talked about how you apply that to the school context, where uh, students uh, have an expectation of privacy, but diminished uh, compared to in some regards anyway, compared to members of the general public out on. On the streets, uh, and it's it's vitally important that in the school context, uh, there be similar protections uh, that school administrators or school resource officers, law enforcement officers, aren't able just to to seize a kid's cell phone because they uh, find the kid with it, you know, in violation of the school rule against using cell phones during class time, and then just start scrolling through everything on it, which can include you know the, the same kind of private thing that any of us have: text messages with friends, or romantic partners, communications with parents. Uh, schedules, about doctor's appointments, all that kind of stuff. Um, there are similar issues about school-issued uh, laptops and other technology or, or um, you know, iPads, tablet computers uh, that kids are going to use for school assignments, but they're also just going to use for their own social media use, for their own projects. They are going to edit their own YouTube videos on them. Uh, and so we want to make sure that school districts are adopting policies uh, or legislatures are imposing them that uh, give appropriate access to the school to make sure that there's no malware, that they're not being used maliciously, uh, but protect the student's privacy when they're uh, conducting just the the full normal range of human activity on those devices.
2: That's one of the issues that cropped up with body cameras because police were wearing them into schools, and that's something that not a lot of, not a lot of people sort of anticipated off the bat when everyone was rallying for body cameras. And then, what can you do with that footage? Does it fall under public records laws? Can you access it? You know, what happens to that student data? Does it come under FERPA? Does it come under student data laws? Like, in which ways is it protected? And that's an area of a lot of ambiguity with regards to social media surveillance. And and you didn't ask specifically about surveillance, but there is sort of a a rising interest in how you can surveil uh, how you behave and act on social media, not just you specifically, but generally to try and anticipate where criminal behavior might be taking place, or to go back and search through people's social media postings, like on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, to find evidence of a crime, and then you get into this very messy issue of context collapse, because people might be portraying a particular image of themselves, uh, either in a protective way to make affiliations with a gang, uh, or with someone in the neighborhood, so that they're You know, perceived as tough, even if they're not actually doing anything. And then it's sort of left to officers to try and detect what behavior constitutes a real threat or what does not. And right now, there's very, like, it's very happenstance. protocols about how you address the information you find online. Uh, There's not like a universal policy of like, here's what you should do and here's how you should intervene if you find someone bragging about a crime or drug use or something like that or posting rap lyrics or making it what could be perceived as a threat and what might be a vernacular joke. And so there's certainly an area that's ripe for (laughs) new policy initiatives and sort of broader thinking around how you should address the things that you locate on social media. And it's not even just officers on the ground who are sort of doing the the actual legwork. They're sitting at a computer and they're looking at Facebook and they're trying to figure out what to do. Uh, it's also services that are coming in from other commercial areas. So for example, the same services that can uh, geotag uh, Twitter postings and locate where there's a rising protester activity that might be really useful for journalists can also be co-opted for policing purposes to try and detect where there's you know, a need to place law enforcement and things like that. So these various technologies that are coming in to help try and uh, filter threats, uh, try and allocate resources, uh, come with a whole slew of complications.
1: Uh, I would add that uh, Nate's colleague uh, Jay Stanley uh, did write uh, an interesting article on b- body cameras, specifically in schools, and I think anyone interested in that should certainly check it out. Uh, I'll try. And- I'll take the gentleman of glasses in the middle.
3: <laughs> There's two right in a row. Sorry. Yeah.
1: I- <laughs> oh goodness. Oh, there were. T- <laughs> you can't see. Oh, this a- And you're wearing the same colored shirt and the same <laughs> blazer. Yeah. Uh, the one. Sorry. So. Oh. <clears throat>
5: Hello, my name is Peter Bishop. I'm with the, I'm a member of the Washington Ethical Society, and when you're talking, when you're talking about the stingrays, I can easily imagine an investigator looking at the bystander data from a stingray and saying this is valuable and relevant information for my investigation because it will tell me who the associates are of the target of my investigation, and I was wondering Uh, presumably when you're talking about procedures for deleting bystander data, presumably you're dealing with such arguments. And I was wondering sort of where this discussion is right now. And I'd love to know if the White House has any interest in stingrays. Uh,
4: So um, that is part part of the debate, although it hasn't been much of the the debate. You know, one way that police use stingrays is they they, uh, know which cell phone they're tracking and they they drive around until they find it, and then they find the room in the house that it's in. Another way is they might know who they're surveilling, but they want to figure out the cell phone number. They don't know the cell phone number yet. So they may intentionally set up outside of the house of the suspect, and then their, their office, and then their lunch spot, and their barber shop, and their gym. And intentionally sucking a list of all the people at all those locations, and then you cross compare those lists, and the one in common is almost certainly going to be the phone of the person you're you're surveilling. Uh, and you can imagine other other uses, and maybe a conspiracy case where they they know that a bunch of co-conspirators are meeting in, at this location at this time, and they want to figure out what all the cell phones are that are that are there. In that kind of a circumstance, um, you know, at a minimum, you would need a, a warrant application showing probable cause as to all of those targets, uh, and uh, and providing protections for everyone else, um, right? So it, it may be that you are allowed to track you know, more than one person at a time, um, but that doesn't mean that the agency gets to keep all of the other bystanders in all the houses next door.
1: Okay. Um, this will have to be the last question. I'll go to uh, the gentleman at the front. Here.
5: Uh, Howard Woldridge with LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, retired detective question concerns uh, the effectiveness of of body cameras Um, my chief told me before I retired that he would never ever allow a dash camera other type of uh, cameras uh, in the car on persons and blank a statement the reason of course is when he was a patrolman he did things and said things he didn't want seen by the public Um, so in terms of what we know today I think I read in the popular press there's a a 100-man department, I think, in California that has worn it for a year. They dropped citizens' complaints by like 70 percent, use of force by 60 percent. Can anyone of you tell us, is there information out there already that says police, and I say this with love, act more civilly and don't hurt and shoot as many people because of body cameras?
2: Um, that study itself has received a, a lot of criticism and may not have generalizable results. If you're testing out body cameras in like a small or rural area, it's going to have a totally different evaluation than if you're testing it out in somewhere like New York, where there's thousands of officers who capture thousands of images you know, every minute of every day. And but with regards to the sort of the so-called civilizing effect that it's perceived to have, it seems to depend partly on the. Mutual awareness that both the officer and the civilian have that the camera is there and on, whereas in some circumstances police might not turn it on or might not like to show that it's that it's turned on or might not announce that it's on. And there might be laws in place such that you know if you only need one party consent for recording a conversation, you don't have to announce its particular use. And some uh, police departments have opted to announce it anyways because they're trying to you know have an impact, whether or not that. So-called civilizing effect actually wears off after a couple of years. Once people are, you know, well adjusted to having cameras record all of their interactions with police, is still a, a matter of speculation. But even if police uh, refuse, you know, body cameras, which many did initially, and then sort of a, a lot of people got on board because they found they could reduce complaints against them very quickly. Um, you still have civilians who are recording events that they transpire, and what the body cameras sort of do is give the police a, a certain vantage point because they're recording members. Oops, sorry, members of the community, as opposed to just being recorded themselves. There's some ability to counter one narrative with another narrative. Um, can, can
3: I take? Yes. Just um, so I, I mentioned in my remarks that the uh, the technology has gotten ahead of the policy. The technology's also gotten ahead of the research. Um, we are trying to catch up. So I know um, the National Institute of Justice at DOJ has um, granted made several grants in this space to try to study these effects, and also the Laura and John Arnold Foundation have made multiple grants uh, to try to figure out exactly the questions that you're asking. And then to Alex's point, uh, there's actually an organization called Witness, which was founded by Peter Gabriel post Rodney King. We've actually had recordings of of police officers for, for decades now. Um, and so, Witness has been doing some really interesting work as well in kind of the uh, community recording space. So there are, there is more coming. Um, we recognize that this is a gap, and it's we're trying to fill it.
1: Uh, on that, we're going to have to bring this to a close. Uh, what we are doing now, there is a ten-minute break. There are refreshments in the lobby, but at two, uh, sorry, not at ten thirty. Uh, Please be back here for uh, remarks and the next panel. Uh, Please join me in thanking uh, all the panelists one last time.